that irregardless of how hard he tried on willpower, from time to time his mind would tell him it's okay to drink, and Dr. Bob identified with him immediately. Then Dr. Bob, already being in the Oxford group, he began to apply their program to a depth he never had before, and he recovered. And they learned at that particular meeting the value of one alcoholic sharing with another alcoholic. Immediately, they went to see this guy named Bill Dotson, and they sat down and shared their stories with Bill Dotson. And as they shared their stories with Bill Dotson, then Bill Dotson could see his problem, too. And he could see that it wasn't willpower, moral character, and sin. For the first time, he understood the hopeless condition of mind and body known as alcoholism. Then he applied the program of action, and he recovered. So from that time on, any time they talked to a newcomer, they did it by sharing their stories. Now, the Oxford group, people call that making a visit. Today, we call it a 12-step call. But when the big book was written and came out in 1937, 38, and 39, they knew they wouldn't be able to go make a one-on-one -on -one visit to the first guy in California. They wouldn't be able to make a one-on-one -on -one visit to the first guy in South Dakota. So they knew that the big book had to be complete enough to do the entire job that they would normally do on a one-on-one -on -one basis during the visit. So they said, now, we've already told them about the doctor's opinion. Now then, we need to show them an example of a guy that had this alcoholism thing, this physical allergy, this obsession of the mind. We need to share our story with them just like we do on a one-on-one -on -one visit. So they said, what we need to do now is put the story of one of we alcoholics in the big book so that that new guy in California will be able to identify. And, of course, they decided to put Bill's story in here. <clears throat> a lot of people say we couldn't identify with Bill, because, after all, he was a New York City stock speculator, and we were not. After all, he was a night school lawyer, and we were not. In my part of the country, they say, yeah, and he was a Yankee, too, and that had something to do with it. <laughs> A lot of the women say we couldn't identify with him because he's a man and we're a woman. But if we carefully look at Bill's story, if we're a real alcoholic, male or female, young or old, whatever our occupation, we're going to be able to identify with Bill Wilson. We're going to be able to see that he thought and he felt just exactly like the rest of we alcoholics, that he made decisions and took actions just exactly like the rest of we alcoholics. And we're going to be able to see the progression of his illness. We're going to be able to see him starting out with fun drinking like most of us started with. We're going to be able to see his drinking be becoming more serious as time goes by, beginning to drink all day and almost every night. Then we're going to see him progress to the point where he was drinking for absolute necessity in order to live. No fun involved at all anymore. And then we're going to see it progress to the point of where he's drinking for absolute, complete oblivion just to get out of the picture. And any real alcoholic is going to be able to identify with Bill Wilson. And then we're going to see the greatest thing of all. 
We're going to see him affect a recovery from that condition known as alcoholism. And if we're brand new, never had any contact with this little fellowship, the book is all we've got. And we read Bill's story and we identify with Bill and we see him recover. Then here is the beginning of belief and the beginning of hope that we're enough like this guy that if he could recover from this condition, just maybe, maybe we could too. So as we look through Bill's story, let's look for identification. Let's look for progression. Let's look for the beginning of belief and the beginning of hope. Joe? I love Bill's story today. It tells the whole story about Cause Anonymous in this one little story. But unfortunately for me, when I come into A, I picked up this book not knowing that I'm supposed to identify with Bill. I'd seen pictures of Bill early in my sobriety, and my thought was, what's an old man like him going to tell me about staying sober? <laughs> you see, I had an open mind. After all, he was about 43 years old when this book was written. I wasn't that old. He, looked, he looks very young today at 43, I can tell you that. But uh, not knowing I was supposed to identify, I just read a little bit of his story, and I just closed my mind to it. But as time has gone by, I've learned to study Bill's story. Bill's story has the whole story of Alcoholics Anonymous in it. I began to see that Bill was a lot like me and most alcoholics that I know. Had a very optimistic attitude, Bill did. He was a very hard-working individual, just like most alcoholics are. He has lots and lots of willpower, like most alcoholics are. My wife says, I've got lots of willpower, but I never use much of it. But I got it. <laughs> a self-made man, that's what Bill was, a great man. Those ordinary attributes, he became very successful in his own right. But as we said, Bill's story tells us what he was like, how he learned he was sick, and most importantly, how he affected the recovery. The whole story about Cause Anonymous is in Bill's story. Let's go to page one, chapter one, Bill's story. War fever ran high in the New England town to which we new young officers from Plattsburgh were assigned. We were flattered when the first citizens took us to their homes, making us feel heroic. Here was love, applause, war, Moments sublime with intervals hilarious. Has anybody but me ever had moments sublime with intervals hilarious <laughs> while drinking? I love Bill's story, and I love the way he writes. I was part of life at last, and in the midst of the excitement, I discovered liquor. I forgot the strong warnings and prejudices of my people concerning drink. In time, we sailed for over there. I was very lonely again turned to alcohol. We landed in, Win we landed in England. I visited Winchester Cathedral. Much moved, I wandered outside. My attention was caught by an old dog on an old tombstone. Here lies a Hampshire grenadier who caught his death drinking cold, small beer. A good soldier never forgot whether he dies by musket or by pot. Now, for you younger guys, this pot we're talking about is not this wacky weed that we use today. He's referring to a pot of beer. And that's the way it used to be served in England and still is in many, many cases. So he's talking about a pot of beer. I have a picture here of this uh, tombstone in Winchester Cathedral. If somebody would like to come by and look at it. The name on it is Thomas Thatcher. 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 I don't know if there's any correlation between the two, but it's kind of interesting. And I have some other photos here. Here's the gatehouse that Bill and Bob met in that we talked about last night. The uh, directory of which he made the phone call. 
Dr. Bob's uh, tombstone. If you haven't seen that, it's worth seeing. William B. Silkworth's tombstone. Bill and Lois at East Dorset, Vermont. Spiritual experience. There's a little bucket right there. You take your little ship, your little sobriety ship, put it in that bucket and find one just like it and take it with you. Kind of called uh, Pass It On. Bill and Bob as young people. Bill and Abby Thatcher was some of the pictures around here. Abby Thatcher, the forgotten man in Alcoholics Anonymous. Charlie and I were in, uh, in Albany a few years ago, about three or four years ago, and we learned that he was buried there, Abby was. I thought he was down in Texas, but he's in, in Albany. We went out to see his grave, and the weeds were up over our head. No one had been there in a long, long time. The guy was with us. He had uh, in charge of a lot of money. And so he paid the cemetery money to keep this grave cleared off so people can come by and visit. If you're interested, it's in Albany, New York, the Statuary Cemetery, Lot 56, if you're interested in seeing that. Without him, there's no AA. Without any of these men and women, there's no AA. See, we talked about last night's slender threads. I call it seconds and inches. You know, for instance, if Bill had had went in that bar and had a drink or two or three, rather than going down and making that phone call, we wouldn't be sitting here, seconds and inches. Abby hadn't brought Bill the message, seconds and inches, we wouldn't be here either. All these people, very, very important. But ominous warning, which I failed to heed. 22 in a veteran of foreign wars, I went home at last. I fancied myself a leader. For had not the men of my battery given me a special token appreciation, my talent for leadership, I imagine, would place me at the head of vast enterprises, which I would manage with utmost assurance. He said, I took a night law course and obtained employment as an investigator for a surety company. The drive for success was on. I proved to the world that I was important. I already identify with Bill Wilson. <laughs> all I ever wanted to do was succeed at something and prove to the world that I'm important also, every alcoholic I've ever known, that great driving force to show them we're just as good as they are. I certainly identify with Bill Wilson. My work took me about Wall Street, and little by little I became interested in the market. Many people lost money, but some became very rich. Why not I? I studied economics and business as well as law. Potential alcoholic that I was, I nearly failed my law course. At one of the finals, I was too drunk to think or to write. Though my drinking was not yet continuous, it disturbed my wives. I can identify with that. How many wives yeah, have you had? I've had two of them. Two of them? Yeah. How many times you've been married we've, to them? We've been, we've been filed for divorce seven times between the two. It's another story. <laughs> we had long talks when I would sell her forebodings by telling her that men of genius conceive their best projects when drunk that the most majestic constructions of philosophic thought were so derived. Charlie said last night that we make our living selling fast talk to slow-thinking people. Bill's trying to sell some of that right here, but we all know Lois didn't buy that. <laughs> By the time I'd completed the course, I knew the law was not for me. The inviting mail of Wall Street had me in his grip. Business and financial news were my heroes. Out of this alloy of drink and speculation, I commenced to forge the weapon that one day turned into flight like a boomerang and all but cut me to ribbons. He said, living modestly, my wife and I saved $1,000. 
and went into certain securities in cheap and rather unpopular. I rightly imagine that they would someday have a great rise. I failed to persuade my broker friends to send me out looking over factories and managements, but my wife and I decided to go anyway. I had developed a theory that most people lost money in stocks through ignorance of markets. I discovered many more reasons later on. <laughs> Bill became really one of the first real investment counselors on Wall Street. The time he's referring to here is in the 1920s. Stock market was on a roll. Just about everybody was making money. All you had to do was buy stock, hold it, let it go up in price, sell it, take your profits, buy some more. And you only had to put down about 10% margin. You get all the rest of it. You can buy it on credit, etc. And Bill began to say, look, sooner or later this bubble's going to burst. Sooner or later we're going to have to start making our decisions on what to buy based on fact rather than speculation. He said, I don't have the money to do this. But if you guys would back me financially, I'll go out and I'll visit these companies personally. And I'll look at the plant, I'll talk to the employees, I'll examine the books wherever possible, and then I'll write up reports and send them back into Wall Street. And then we'll start making our decisions based on fact. And they said, no, Bill, thank you. We don't need that kind of information. We're making about all the money we want to make anyhow. Well, you know how we alcoholics are. If we get a good idea, we're going to carry it through. Come hell or high water, doesn't make any difference. He said, my wife and I decided to go anyway. I developed a theory that most people lost money in stocks through ignorance of markets. I discovered many more reasons later on. We gave up our positions, and off we roared on a motorcycle. And that picture is around here somewhere, right here behind me, I think, of them traveling on that motorcycle. The sidecar stuff with tent blankets, a change of clothes, three huge volumes of the financial reference service. Our friends thought a lunacy commission should be appointed. Well, perhaps they were right. I had had some success in speculation, so we had a little money. But we once worked on a farm for a month to avoid drawing on our small capital. That was the last honest manual labor on my part for many a day. We covered the whole eastern United States in a year, traveling up and down the eastern seaboard, visited approximately 100 of the largest companies. At the end of it, my reports to Wall Street procured me a position there and the use of a large expense account. These guys on Wall Street that had the money saw these reports and they said, oh yeah, man, this is great information. They put him on the payroll, gave him a large expense account. The exercise of an option brought in more money, leaving us with a profit of several thousand dollars for that year. Now, bills from a little town up in Vermont called East Dorset never really had anything before in his life and all of a sudden here he is on Wall Street got him a good job and a good expense account he's exercised an option made several thousand dollars a lot of money back in the 1920s a lot of money today but especially then and he said for the next few years fortune through money and applause my way I had arrived how many of us have done the same thing? You know, this literally worked our tails off. And the day we succeeded, whatever it was we're trying to do, what a great feeling that is. My judgment and ideas were followed by many to the tune of paper millions. 
The great boom of the late 20s was seething and swelling. Drink was taking an important, exhilarating part in my life. He doesn't know he's alcoholic. He just knows that he loves to drink. There was loud talk in the jazz places uptown. Everyone spending thousands and chattered in millions. Scoffers could scoff and be damned. I made a host of fair-weather friends. Now we know, as an alcoholic, his drinking is going to be progressive. He says, my drinking assumed more serious proportions, continuing all day and almost every night. The remonstrances of my, friend, my friends terminated in a row, and I became a lone wolf. No people began to say to Bill, you're drinking too much. Bill, you need to cut back. Bill, you're costing us money. Bill, why don't you quit? And he did the same thing the rest of us did. He said, to hell with them. I don't need them anyhow. And now he's beginning to operate on his own. There were many unhappy scenes in our sumptuous apartment. There had been no real infidelity for loyalty to my wife, helped at times by extreme drunkenness, kept me out of those scrapes. I always believed everything Bill wrote, but I'm not too sure about that one. <laughs> Bill wrote a little book called As Bill Sees It. Lois wrote one called Lois Remembers. <laughs> And her account of this situation a little better than his. And let's go over to page four, first paragraph. Here's old Bill now, man. He's doing good, and he's making a lot of money. Hang around no jazz places uptown. I used to like to hang around no jazz places. Chattered in thousands, talked in millions. Didn't have any money, but we talked a lot about it. Spending money I didn't have, trying to impress people I didn't like. Man, I did a lot of that. But old Bill's got lots of willpower, a lot of hope, and hard work, an optimistic man, self-made man, doing great. On page four, abruptly in October 1929, hell broke loose on the New York Stock Exchange. After one of those days of inferno, I wobbled from a hotel bar to a brokerage office. It was eight o'clock, five hours after the market had closed. The ticker still clattered. I was staring at an inch of tape which bore the inscription XYZ32. Had been 52 that morning. Well, I was finished, so were many friends. The papers reported men jumping to death from the towers of high finance. That disgusted me. I would not jump. I went back to the bar. <laughs> he had a solution for that problem, see? My friends had dropped several million since 10 o'clock, well, so what? Tomorrow was another day. As I drank, that old fierce determination to win came back. How many of us have done the same thing? Come out of the hospital or the jailhouse or the divorce court, low, sad, and depressed. Stop off in a bar and have a couple of drinks. And as the alcohol courses through our veins, we say, we'll show them. By God, they're not going to treat us that way. And we're off and we're running again. That old fierce determination to win came back. Next morning, I telephoned a friend in Montreal. He had plenty of money left, and I thought I'd better go to Canada. <laughs> Bill was a drunk. He wasn't stupid. He went where the money was. It's all up here in Washington, D.C. Yes, yeah, up here now. Yeah. It used to be in Canada. It's all invested in those buildings out there. <laughs> By the following spring, we were living in our accustomed style. I felt like Napoleon returning from Melba. No St. Helena for me, but drinking caught up with me again, and my gender friend had to let me go. This time, we stayed broke. And we see the progression. The drinking gets gradually worse and worse. Now we've reached a point where we really can't even hold a job because of our drinking. We went to live with my wife's parents. That's got to be a real come down for a guy like Bill. Lots of ego, lots of success. Can't even afford an apartment for he and his wife, so he has to go live with his wife's parents. He said, I found a job and then lost the results as a brawl with a taxi driver. 
Mercifully, no one would guess that I was having no real employment for five years or hardly draw a sober breath. My wife began to work in a, in a department store, coming home exhausted to find me drunk. I become an unwelcome hanger on these brokerage places. Those brokerage places were built and made a lot of people a lot of money. Well, he used to be welcomed. Now they're saying to Bill, Bill, you don't look good. You don't smell good. You're not making us any money. Why don't you just go on down the street and hang around down there a little bit? You see, not even welcome at the brokerage places. We used to make a lot of money for a lot of people. Now then we begin to drink for an entirely different reason. Liquor ceased to be a luxury. It became a necessity. We're not drinking for fun now. We're drinking because we have to drink in order to live. Bathtub gin, two bottles a day, and often three got to be routine. Sometimes a small deal would net a few hundred dollars, and I would pay my bills at the bars and delicatessens. This went on endlessly, and I began to waken very early in the morning, shaking violently. A tumbler full of gin, followed by half a dozen bottles of beer, would be required if I were to eat any breakfast. Nevertheless, I still thought I could control the situation, and there were periods of sobriety which renewed my wife's hope. Remember last night, Dr. Silkworth said we really cannot differentiate the true from the false. What we're doing is absolutely normal to us. We see Bill's life going to hell in a handbasket already. Bill can't see that. Things are real bad for Bill, but they're going to get worse. Gradually things got worse. The house was taken over by the mortgage holder. My mother-in-law died. My wife and father-in-law became ill. Then I got a promising business opportunity. Stocks were at the low point of 1932, and I had somehow formed a group to buy. I was to share generously in the profits. Then I went on a prodigious bend there, and that chance vanished. It's a story within itself. The guys that really had the money, they knew how good Bill was at putting these deals together. They went to see Bill, and they said, Bill, we've got a, we've got a deal we'd like to have you work on. Great opportunity for you and us both. Now, the only thing is, if you're going to get involved in it, you've got to stay sober. You can't drink. And Bill said, oh, don't worry about that drinking. I'm through with it. You don't have to worry about that at all. And he began to work on this deal. And a matter of months went by, and he stayed sober, and he's gradually put this thing together. And just a night or two before it was to be successfully completed, they're sitting around in a hotel room. Somebody passes around a bottle of Applejack. This was in Prohibition days. Came to Bill, and Bill said, no, thank you, I'm not drinking. Went right on by him. In a little while, the bottle came back to him. And the guy next to him said, Bill, you don't understand what's in this bottle. He said, this, 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 is, this Applejack in this bottle is called Jersey Lightning, finest Applejack in the world. You better have a drink. And Bill's mind said, hmm. I've never tasted any Jersey Lightning before. And no more thought than that, he grabbed the bottle, took a drink, triggered the allergy, couldn't stop drinking, and blew the whole deal. Now, the importance in it lies within the next statement. I woke up. This had to be stopped. I saw I could not take so much as one drink. I was through forever. First time Bill really could realize what alcohol was doing to him. For the first time, he could see the truth behind it. I had written lots of sweet promises, 
But my wife happily observed that this time I meant business, and so I did. So he trotted out his most useful tool. He trotted out his willpower. And he said, sick them, Will. We're through without drinking. We're never going to take another drink as long as we live. You know, people try to tell us we're weak-willed people. Don't you believe that? We are strong-willed people. Weak-willed people do not become alcoholic. Third time they puke, they quit drinking. <laughs> alcoholic knows there's got to be some way to drink without puking, and we damn near kill ourselves. Trying, we got lots of willpower. See, Bill doesn't—he doesn't hasn't learned yet what we learned last night. That any time there's a battle going on between the willpower and the obsession of the mind, the obsession of the mind will win out each and every time because it's stronger than our will. Let's see what Bill did with willpower. He said, shortly after I came home drunk, there had been no fight. What had been my high resolve? I simply didn't know. It hadn't even come to mind. Anybody in here besides me identify with Bill Wilson? You betcha. Someone pushed a drink my way, not taking it. Was I crazy? See, if, you, if your willpower doesn't work, you begin to question your sanity. Am I just crazy? Is that it? I begin to wonder if such an appalling lack of perspective seemed near being just that. But, renewing my resolve, I tried again. Some time passed and confidence began to be replaced by cocksureness. I could laugh at those gin mills. Now I had what it takes. One day I walked into a cafe to telephone. In no time I was reading on the bar asking myself how it happened. As the whiskey rose to my head, I told myself I would manage better next time. But I might as well get in good and drunk then. And I did. Anybody ever done that like Bill did? I have. The remorse, horror, and hopelessness of the next morning are unforgettable. The courage to do battle was not there. My brain raised uncontrollably, and there's a terrible sense of impending calamity. I hardly dared cross the street lest I, lest I collapse and be run down by an early morning truck, for it was scarcely daylight. An all-night place supplied me with a dozen glasses of ale. My writhing nerves were stilled at last. A morning paper told me the market had gone to hell again, well, so would I. The market would recover, but, but I wouldn't. That was a hard thought. Should I kill myself now? No, not now. Then a mental fog settled down. Jim would fix that. Two bottles and oblivion. So we see the progression of Bill. He started out trying to use his willpower to stay sober. Couldn't do it. He began to question his sanity and still couldn't stay sober. And then he begins to think about committing suicide. You see, two pages earlier, Bill was laughing at those people who were jumping out the window of the towers of high finance. Two pages later now, he's contemplating committing suicide himself. Should I kill myself? No, not now. Then Bill was drinking for the sickest effect of all, which is total oblivion. He just wanted out of it. And those of us who drink for oblivion understand only one thing wrong with that is you wake up. He had to do it all over again. That's where we find Bill at this time. The mind and body are marvelous mechanisms. For mine endured this agony two more years. Sometimes I stole from my wife's slender purse when the morning terror and madness were on me. Again, I swayed dizzily before an open window or the medicine cabinet where there was poison, cursing myself for a weekly. There were flights from city to country and back as my wife and I sought escape. Then came the night when the physical or mental torture was so hellish, I feared I would burst through my window, sash and all. Somehow I managed to drag my mattress to a lower floor, lest I suddenly leap. 
A doctor came with a heavy sedative. Next day found me drinking both gin and sedative. And this combination soon landed me on the rocks. People feared for my sanity, so did I. I could eat little or nothing when drinking, and I was 40 pounds underweight. Now we see a guy who's dying from alcoholism. All of his food that he's getting is out of the alcohol itself. And getting his calories there, they are the empty calories, and he's dying from malnourishment. He might not have been around much longer if it hadn't been for his brother-in-law. My brother-in-law is a physician, and through the kindness and that of my mother, I was placed in a nationally known hospital for the mental and physical rehabilitation of alcoholics, Towns Hospital, New York City. Under the so-called belladonna treatment, my brain cleared. Belladonna was a drug that they used for withdrawal purposes. Today they use uh, Valium and various other things. Back then they were using belladonna. Hydrotherapy and mild exercise help much. Hydrotherapy is water treatment. And one time we got into an old-style treatment center, and they would take this alcoholic and strap them down on a gurney, move them into a shower room. The shower room was oval-shaped and had shower heads all the way around it, alternating hot and cold water. And the alcoholic would be in there for about 30 minutes. Now, it doesn't cure alcoholism, but it sure as hell makes a clean drunk out of you. I know that. <laughs> Best of all, I met a kind doctor. Now, he's referring to Dr. Silkworth, who explained that though certainly selfish and foolish, I had been seriously ill bodily and mentally. And Dr. Silkworth explained his ideas about the physical allergy and the obsession of the mind. And Bill said it relieved me somewhat to learn that in alcoholics the will is amazingly weakened when it comes to combating liquor, though it often remains strong in other respects. My incredible behavior in the face of a desperate desire to stop was explained. Understanding myself now, I fared forth in high hope. For three or four months, the goose hung high. I went to town regularly and even made a little money. Surely this was the answer, self-knowledge. For the first time, Bill understood what the problem was. And he thought, now that I know what the problem is, I'll not have to drink anymore. Self-knowledge would fix it. Let's see where he went on self-knowledge. But it was not. For the frightful day came when I drank once more. The curve of my declining moral and bodily health fell off like a ski jump. And after a time, I returned to the hospital. Second trip in 1934. This was the finish, the curtain, it seemed to me. My weary and despairing wife was informed that all end with heart failure during delirium tremens, or I would develop a wet rain perhaps within a year. She would soon have to give me over to the undertaker of the asylum. Bill was laying in there sick, trying to detox and recover. Bill and Lois and Dr. Silk were standing outside in the hallway talking. She asked Dr. Silkworth, said, Dr. Silkworth, is he going to make it this time? He said, Lois, I don't think so. We're going to have to give him over to the undertaker of this island because I don't think he's got enough to come back with. See, this is one reason why you can't scare an alcoholic. See what he said next. They did not need to tell me. I knew and almost welcomed the idea. See, you can't scare an alcoholic into staying sober. It was a devastating blow to my pride. I, who thought so well of myself and my abilities, 
of my capacity to surmount obstacles was cornered at last. Now I was plunged into the dark, joining that endless possession of solitude gone on before. I thought of my poor wife. There had been much happiness after all. What would I not give to make amends? But that was over now. You see, we see Bill in a hopeless condition of mind and body, totally without hope. And you know, we can't, none of us can live very long without hope. But Bill was hopeless and powerless over alcohol at this moment. Now let's look at the next paragraph very, very carefully. No words can tell of the loneliness and despair I found in that bitter morass of self-pity. Quicksand stretched around me in all directions. I had met my match. I had been overwhelmed. Alcohol was my master. I've never seen a better description of step one. No step one written in those days. But this is where Bill took it. And he admitted he was absolutely powerless over alcohol. Alcohol had become his master. Now, if that should happen to you and I today, well, we probably would say, well, that being the case, I guess I better go to AA. But Bill didn't have any AA to go to. He's in the best treatment facility he knows of. And even though he's taken what we know today as step one, admitted complete defeat, the only thing he can do is leave that hospital and try to stay sober. Trembling, I stepped from the hospital a broken man. Fear sobered me for a bit. Then came the insidious insanity of that first drink. In an armistice day, 1934, I was off again. Everyone became resigned to the certainty that I would have to be shut up somewhere I would stumble along to a miserable end. How dark it is before the dawn. In reality, that was the beginning of my last debauch. I was soon to be catapulted in what I like to call the fourth dimension of existence. I wish to know happiness, peace, and usefulness in a way of life that is incredibly more wonderful as time passes. Near the end of that bleak November, and I imagine it was a pretty bleak November, he took a drink on November the 11th, our mistress day. He's been drunk now for about three weeks. I sat drinking in my kitchen. With a certain satisfaction, I reflected there was enough gin concealed about the house to carry me through that night and the next day. My wife was at work. I wondered whether I dared hide a full bottle of gin near the head of her bed. I would need it before daylight. My musing was interrupted by the telephone. The cheery voice of an old school friend asked if he might come over. He was sober. If you'll notice, that's in squiggly writing. <laughs> that's very, very important. He was sober. It was years since I could remember his coming to New York in that condition. I was amazed. Rumor had it that he had been committed for alcoholic insanity. I wondered how he had escaped. And he's referring, of course, to Abby Thatcher. And Abby was an old schoolmate, an old drinking buddy of Bill's. And Bill hadn't seen him in New York City in a long time, and he never had seen him in New York City sober. So Bill was amazed by this condition. Said, rumor had they been committed for alcoholic insanity. I wonder how it escaped. And this this fellow's name was Abby Thatcher. And Abby's family is a very prominent family in Albany, New York. In fact, the father was running for re-election to mayor. Abby's drinking was embarrassing his re-election campaign, so he decided to call him in and basically get him out of town, what he wanted to do. He said, Abby, you're embarrassing the family with your drinking and things that you're doing. I want you to go on over to East Dorset, Vermont, and hang around over there a little while and... And so we can get reelected. Oh, 
I had a summer place over in Vermont. Yeah, and you have a summer place. And while we're over there, you might as well clean up the summer place and paint it up and fix it up a bit. Try to stay sober if you can, because we'll be over next summer. So Abby went to Vermont, began to clean up and fix up the old summer place. And one day he was standing back admiring the paint job he just finished on the side of the house, naturally drinking a little bit. There were some pigeons under the eaves began to do things on the side of his house that he didn't like. So he went in the house and got his shotgun and began to shoot those pigeons, blowing the holes in the side of the house. Well, neighbors don't like this at all. So they called the police, and the police took him to jail, and they're going to send him to uh, the insane asylum for alcoholic insanity. Almost anybody could do that in those days. Your best friend, your wife, the police department, the judge, almost any. We were fair game, in other words. They could do that. But he got very lucky. There was two fellows who interceded on his behalf. One was this Roland Hazard, and the other was Zebra Graves. It just so happened that Zebra Graves' father was the judge. And Roland and Zebra were members of the Oxford group, and they interceded on Abby's behalf and persuaded the judge to let him come with them so they could go to the Oxford group. Maybe they could get him sober the way those two were staying sober. Well, the judge didn't want to put him in jail or insane asylum any more than they do today, so they released Abby to their care. And he began to go to those Oxford group meetings, and sure enough, he began to stay sober. And after a couple of months of staying sober, he decided to go back to New York and stayed at the Calvary Mission, the headquarters of the Oxford group in New York. And while he was there, he remembered his friend Bill. He said, I think I'll go and see Bill and see if I can get him sobered up the way they sobered me up. So that's why he was there to see Bill. Now, of course, Bill didn't know any of this stuff. Of course, he would have dinner and I could drink openly with him. Unmindful of his welfare, I thought only of recapturing the spirit of other days. There was a time we'd charter an airplane to complete a jag. His coming was an oasis in this dreary desert of futility, the very thing an oasis. Drinkers are like that. The door opened and he stood there, fresh-skinned and glowing. There was something about his eyes. He was inexplicably different. What had happened? I pushed a drink across the table. He refused it. Disappointed but curious, I wondered what got into the fellow. He wasn't himself. Come, what's all this about, I queried. He looked straight at me simply, but smilingly he said, I've got religion. Now, I'm damn glad that didn't happen in my kitchen. <laughs> I have no idea what I would have done. But here's what Bill did. He said I was aghast. So that was it. Last summer, an alcoholic crackpot. Now I suspected a little cracked about religion. He had that starry-eyed look. Yeah, the old boy was on fire, all right. But bless his heart, let him rant. Besides, my gin would last longer than his preaching. But he did no ranting. In a matter-of-fact way, he told how two men had appeared in court, persuading the judge to suspend his commitment. They had told of a simple religious idea. Which is step two. And a practical program of action. Steps 3 through 12. That was two months ago, and the result was self-evident. It worked. Now Bill knows all three things. He got the problem from Dr. Silkworth way back in the summer of 33, but that didn't keep him sober. Now Abby has brought him the solution, here referred to as a simple religious idea. Now remember, Abby's coming out of the Oxford groups. 
a group of people practicing first century Christianity to the best of their ability. And the terms that they used were highly religious in nature. So Bill said a simple religious idea as the solution, the need for the vital spiritual experience. And also, Eddie gave him the practical program of action from the Oxford Group program. Now then, he knows all three things. What is the problem? What is the solution? And what is the program of action? But Bill was just like all the rest of us. He had an extreme amount of difficulty with this religious idea coming out of the Oxford groups. Let's see where he was able to finally change his idea about this religious thing, Joe. He'd come to pass his experience along to me if I cared to have it. He said, I was shocked, but interested. Certainly I was interested. I had to be, for I was hopeless. See, Bill had already admitted that he was hopeless. He'd already took step one, and here comes the solution. He didn't like that solution any more than most of us are not going to like it. But he began to think about it and questioning and wonder about it. On 10 and 11, Bill has already took step one. 10 and 11, he's somewhere between steps one and step two, which he hasn't took yet. He said he talked for hours. Childhood memories rose before me. I could almost hear the sound of the preacher's voice I said on those still Sundays way over there on the hillside. There was that proper temper pledge I'd never signed. My grandfather's good-natured contempt of some church folk and their doings. His insistence that the Spirit really had their music. But his denial of the preacher's right to tell him how he must listen. His fearlessness that he spoke of these things just before he died. These recollections welled up from the past. They made me swallow hard. That wartime day in old Winchester Cathedral came back again. Bill's grandfather, Grandfather Griffin, had instilled in Bill that the preacher didn't have to, couldn't tell him how he must listen. You could listen the way you wanted to. He instilled that idea into Bill. The, the preacher always had a fight with, with Grandfather Griffin. They always argued about these things, and Bill heard those arguments. He said that uh, I'd always believed in the power greater than myself. I'd often pondered these things. I was not an atheist. Few people really are. For that means blind faith in a strange proposition that the universe originated in a cipher and aimlessly rushes nowhere. My intellectual heroes, the chemists, the astronomers, even the evolutionists, suggested vast laws and forces at work. But despite contrary indications, I had little doubt that a mighty purpose and rhythm underlay all. How could there be so much a precise and immutable law and no intelligence? I simply had to believe in the spirit of the universe who needed neither time nor limitation, but that was as far as I'd gone. This is where I really begin to identify with Bill. With ministers in the world's religion, I parted right there. When they talked of a God person to me who was love, superhuman strength, and direction, I became irritated and my mind snapped shut against such a theory. To Christ, I conceded the certainty of a great man, not too closely followed by those who claimed him, his moral teaching most excellent, for myself, I'd adopted those parts which seemed convenient and not too difficult. The rest I disregarded. Anybody in here identify with Bill Wilson? The wars that's been fought, the burnings, the cannery, the religious dispute facilitated made me sick. I honestly doubted whether on balance the religions of mankind had done any good. Judging what I'd seen in Europe and since, the power of God in human affairs was negligible. The Brotherhood of Man, a grim jest. 
If there was a devil, he seemed the boss universal, and he certainly had me. So we can see Bill's having a hard time with this religious idea. But my friend sat before me, and he made the point-blank declaration that God had done for him what he could not do for himself. His human will had failed. Doctors had pronounced him incurable. Society was about to lock him up. Like myself, he had admitted complete defeat. Then he had, in effect, been raised from the dead, suddenly taken from the scrap heap to a level of life better than the best he had ever known. Had this power originated in him? Obviously it had not. There had been no more power in him than there was in me at that minute, and this was none at all. This is where the identification process is so important. Bill knew Abby, and he knew how Abby drank. And he knew that if Ebby was staying sober, some power greater than Ebby had to be working in Ebby's life. Whether Bill likes it or not is beside the point. Ebby is sitting there as living proof of it. That's what you and I have to offer today when we go out on a 12-step call. We're living proof that some power greater than human power is working in our lives also. Whether the newcomer likes it or not is beside the point. We are the living proof of it. Ebby was the proof of it to Bill, and he had to recognize that some power greater than Ebby had to be working in Ebby's life. Bill still doesn't like it. Let's go to page 12, first paragraph. He said, despite the living example of my friend, there remained in me the vestiges of my old prejudice. Now, old prejudice is old ideas. That's all prejudice is, is old ideas. The word God still aroused in a certain antipathy. When the thought was expressed that there might be a God personal to me, this feeling was intensified. I didn't like the idea. I could go for such conceptions of creative intelligence, universal mind, or spirit of nature, but I resisted the thought of the czar of the heavens, however loving his sway might be. I've since talked with scores of men who felt the same way. In other words, Bill's saying there's got to be a harder way to do this. <laughs> What you tell me is just too simple. <laughs> Ebby was coming out of the officer group who was speaking about the letter of the law. Bill had been instilled by his grandfather about the spirit of the law. Two different thoughts. I'd like to have been there that day. I'd like to have been sitting in the corner watching them. Now here's Ebby coming out of the Oxford groups. And he is on fire with this religious idea. Trying to give it to Bill. Bill's sitting there about two-thirds drunk, been drunk for three weeks. And he's trying to resist everything that Evie's telling him. And they're sitting there talking and arguing back and forth about this God thing. And Bill's saying, man, don't, don't tell me about a kind and loving God. Oh, yeah, I'll agree. There might be a great mind or a spirit of nature or something like that. But don't give me that God crap. And I guess Evie finally got tired of it. Let's look at the next statement very carefully. And if you'll notice, it is in squiggly writing. That, that's italic. My friend suggested what then seemed a novel idea. He said, well, why don't you choose your own conception of God? And the instant he said that, his message changed from a religious message to a spiritual message. Religion says this is the way you have to believe. Spirituality says it really doesn't make any difference how you believe. The only question is, are you willing to believe? Why don't you choose your own conception of God? 
And surely, 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 this opened the door for Bill Wilson. This little statement has opened the door for literally millions of we alcoholics. You let us have our own conception of God, everything's okay. I think the reason it works so good for we alcoholics is we don't have any problem with our own conception of anything. My idea has got to be good. Let us believe in God the way we want to believe in God. You bet you now, then it's a different idea. Here's the effect it had on Bill. That statement hit me hard. It melted the icy intellectual mountain whose shadow I'd lived and shivered many years. I stood in the sunlight at last. It was only a matter of being willing to believe in a power greater than myself. Nothing more is required of me to make my beginning. I saw that growth could start from that point. Upon a foundation of complete willingness, I might build what I saw in my friend. Would I have it? Of course I would. And this is where Bill took step two. No step two written in those days. But this is where Bill came to believe that a power greater than himself could restore him to sanity or help him out of this situation. And if you'll notice, he said, upon a foundation of complete willingness, I might build what I saw in my friend. Now, this is Bill's first reference to a wonderfully effective spiritual structure. And he's going to start painting a picture in our mind using words. And he said the the foundation of that structure is willingness. Willingness comes from step one. When we can no longer when we, we can see that what we're doing is no longer going to work. That we're going to have to start trying to do something different. Then we become willing to change. That comes from step one. Later on we're going to see where believing step two will be the cornerstone of that wonderfully effective spiritual structure. Later on in step three, he's going to refer to it as step three is the keystone of the new and triumphant arch through which we pass to freedom. Later on, he's going to tie that spiritual structure together through the asterisk to the appendix in the back of the book, The Vital Spiritual Experience. The beginning of the spiritual experience starts right here. We don't have to wait till we get to step 12 to get something. We start building it right here through willingness, step one, and then coming to believe in step two. Bill has now taken what we know today as steps one and step two. Abby immediately starts taking him to Oxford group meetings, but Bill's drunk. The allergies got him, and he can't stop. Finally, he has to go back in the town hospital for the third time on page 13. Now, let's see on page 13 if we can't see the last ten steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. We see one and two. Let's look for the last ten. He said, at the hospital, I was separated from alcohol for the last time. Treatment seemed wise, so I showed signs of delirium tremens. There I humbly offered myself to God as I then understood him to do with me as he would. I placed myself unreservedly under his care and direction. I admitted for the first time that of myself I was nothing. Without him, I was lost. Now, the first step in the Oxford group that they had was surrender. And Bill is making his surrender here in the town's hospital. Later on, when he wrote the 12 steps, he knew no self-respecting alcoholic is going to want to surrender to anything. 
So he made that surrender into our step three, where we make a decision. We will make a decision, but we certainly don't want to surrender. So we see Bill there taking what we know today as step three. He said, I ruthlessly face my sins. Their next step that they had in the Oxford Group program was examine your sins. And Bill knew no self-respecting alcoholic was going to like the word sins. So he changed that to make a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. We will take an inventory. There he's taking what we know today a step forward. And became willing to have my newfound friend take them away root and branch. I've not had a drink since. Newfound friend, if you'll notice, friend is capitalized. He's referring to God here. And he's really referring to what later became steps six and seven. We became willing to have God remove these defects of character, and we humbly ask him to do so. There we see what later became steps six and seven. My schoolmate visited me, and I fully acquainted with my problems and deficiencies. They had a step they called confession and sharing. And no alcoholics wants to confess and share. <laughs> so he changed that to we admitted to God ourselves and another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. There he's taking what we know today as step five. We made a list of people I'd heard toward whom I felt resentment. I expressed my entire willingness to approach these individuals, admitting my wrong. Never was I to be critical of them. I was to write all such matters to the utmost of my ability. They had a step in the Oxford Group program called restitution. And no alcoholic likes the word restitution. So Bill took that and made it into two steps, step eight and nine. We made the list, became willing to the list, and then we began to make the amends wherever possible. There we see eight and nine. I was test my thinking by the new God conscious within. Common sense would thus become uncommon sense. Now that's got to be step ten, where we continue to take personal inventory. I would sit quietly when in doubt, asking only for direction and strength to meet my problems as he would have me. Never was I to pray for myself, except as my request bore on my usefulness to others. Then only might I expect to receive, but that would be in great measure. That's got to be step 11, where we sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understand Him, praying only for knowledge of His will and the power to carry that out. There we see step 11. My friend promised when these things were done, I would enter upon a new relationship with my Creator, that I would have the elements of a way of a living which answered all my problems. That's got to be the first part of step 12, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps. Belief in the power of God, plus enough willingness, honesty, and humility to establish and maintain the new order of things were essential requirements. Simple, but not easy. A price had to be paid. It meant the destruction of self-centeredness. I must turn in all things to the Father of Light who presides over us all. Poor old alcoholics got to give up the two most important things that we love most in this world. The first is our alcohol. The second is our self-centeredness. The things that we love so much. Simple, but not easy. Bill said these were revolutionary and drastic proposals. But the moment I fully accepted them, the effect was electric. There was a sense of victory followed by such a peace and serenity as I'd never known. There was utter confidence. I felt lifted up as though the great clean wind of a mountaintop blew through and through. God comes to most men gradually, but his impact on me was sudden and profound. 
For a moment I was alarmed and called my friend the doctor to ask if I were still sane. And he listened in wonder as I talked. And finally he shook his head saying, something has happened to you. I don't understand, but you'd better hang on to it. Anything is better than the way you were. Now, Bill always said that in the town's hospital, he had a vital spiritual experience as the result of these steps during which old ideas were cast aside and replaced with a new set of ideas. Now, we were not there to see that, and we don't know for sure what happened. But we do know this was about December the 13th or 14th of 1934. We do know that Bill didn't die until January of 1971. He never found it necessary to take another drink for the rest of his life. Something profound took place in his life that day in the town's hospital as the result of these steps. This is why later on when he wrote the big book, And he wrote how it works. He was able to say, these are the steps we took, which are suggested as a program of recovery. He took them in the town hospital using the Oxford Group program. Later on, he expanded them into the 12 steps. Interesting to note that he called the doctor, whom he liked he said, I was alarmed. I called my friend the doctor asked if I was still sane. He listened and wondered as I talked. Finally, he shook his head saying, something's happened to you. I don't understand, but you better hang on to it. Anything's better than the way you were. The good doctor knows, now sees many men who've had such experiences. He knows that they're real. The last conversation they heard from Dr. Silkworth, him telling his wife, we have to lock him up or turn him over to the insane asylum. Billy thought he'd gone insane when he had this experience. He asked the doctor, am I still sane? He said, yeah, you are, but you better hang on to whatever it is that happened to you. It's better, anything's better than the way you were. Something very profound happened to Bill. For the last two or three days, with the help of Ebby, he went over what we know today is the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. The question is always asked, well, how long do I have to stay sober to go through the 12 steps? Two or three days, be all right. You can always improve upon them as time goes by. But the quicker we go through them, the better off we're going to be through the first time. But something profound happened to Bill. He went into that hospital as a selfish, self-centered, egocentric maniac, alcoholic who couldn't stay sober. Something profound happened to Bill. He said, while I lay in the hospital, the thought came that there were thousands of hopeless alcoholics who might be glad to have what had been so freely given me. Perhaps I could help some of them. They, in turn, might work with others. He began to think immediately while he was in the town's hospital how he might help other people with the experience that he just had. Something profound happened to Bill that day. My friend, and this time it's a small F, he's referring to Ebby. My friend had emphasized the absolute necessity of demonstrating these principles in all my affairs. Particularly was it imperative to work with others as he had worked with me. Faith without works was dead, he said, and how appallingly true for the alcoholic. For if an alcoholic failed to perfect and enlarge his spiritual life through work and self-sacrifice for others, he could not survive the certain trials and low spots ahead. If he did not work, he would surely drink again, and if he drank, he would surely die. Then faith would be dead indeed, and with us it's just like that. Bill spent the rest of his life 
trying to help other alcoholics, trying to help the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous, trying to put this thing together so that we could have it today. And during all of that period of time, he managed to stay sober. You know, he went to see Dr. Bob, not to sober up Bob. He went to see Dr. Bob to keep Bill Wilson from drinking. And if it worked for Bill Wilson in those days and the rest of his life, then surely, surely it will work for us today. You know, I find in my own particular life, if I don't work with other alcoholics, if I don't get a little puke on me once in a while, I tend to forget where I came from. And when I forget where I came from, I start getting lost out there. And I start thinking like I used to think before I ever got sober. And next thing you know, I can be in serious, serious trouble. But if I stay active in AA, and if I'm continually working with other alcoholics, new people, I can never forget where I came from. And as long as I don't forget where I came from, I'm going to stay sober. But let me, you know, we got good memories, we alcoholics have, but they're awful short when it comes to alcohol. And unless we're continually reminded of where we came from, then we're going to get in serious trouble. And I'm just like Bill. Working with others is absolutely imperative for me to do. The work's hard, but the pay's good. Alcoholics. So the work's hard, but the pay's good. You get to stay sober. Okay, let's take a little short break, and then we'll jump right, right on into Chapter 2. Let's take just about ten minutes now is all. And by the way, the winning ticket for the big book and the raffle... It's still on the road. Well, okay. I can just see Bill as he uh, as he writes the book, and as he finishes these chapters, he probably sits down and reviews it up to that point. He's probably able to say to himself now at the end of Bill's story, he can probably say, "Well, I was able to show them the problem in the doctor's opinion." I was able to give them an example of an alcoholic who had that problem in my story, Bill's story. And he probably says to himself, I think I've spent all the time I need to now in order to tell them what the problem is. And the next thing I need to tell them is, what is the solution to that problem? And as we've talked before, if the problem is powerless then obviously the answer is going to lie within power. And he sits down and he writes chapter 2, there is a solution. And in chapter 2, he's going to talk about two powers. He's going to talk first about the power of the fellowship that supports us. But he's also going to tell us that that alone is not sufficient that we're going to have to have more than just the power of the fellowship. And in the last half of this chapter, he'll talk about the power that changes us, the vital spiritual experience similar to what he had in the town's hospital when he recovered. So as we go through this chapter, let's be looking for the two powers, and let's see why fellowship alone is not sufficient, and why it's really necessary to have the spiritual experience in order to recover from alcoholism. Chapter 2, there is a solution 
to that condition he's just described through the doctor's opinion and Bill's story. Joe? And this guy that I sponsored, his name was Harold, and Thomas would have remembered Harold. Harold always kind of argued with me. He said, there's as many different solutions as there are people in AA. And I said, well, Harold, if you look at the chapter heading on page 17, they'll tell you how many solutions there are. There is a solution, only one, but two different powers. The power of the fellowship that supports us and the power of the vital spiritual experience that changes us. So we start off here and say we. There's that big word again. We of Alcoholics Anonymous know thousands of men and women who were just as hopeless as Bill. Nearly all have recovered. They've solved the drink problem. It says we're average Americans. Today I say we're average citizens of the world. Because I learned in Toronto there's 180 nations around the world that has Alcoholics Anonymous in it. So we're average citizens of the world today. All sections of this country and men's occupations are represented, as well as many political, economic, social, and religious backgrounds. We are people who normally would not mix. But there exists among us a fellowship, a friendliness, and an understanding which is indescribably wonderful. The fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. You heard it before the, we started the study. The laughing, the t- joking, the rubbing up against, the hugging, the talking loud. That's the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I got sober on the fellowship. I felt good when I was at the fellowship. You know, the fellowship is very, very important. It says we're people who normally would not mix. As I look around the rooms here today, we're people who normally would not mix. We're probably the most mixed up group of people in Washington, D.C. here this morning. But there exists among us a fellowship and a friendliness which is indescribably wonderful. You see, the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous, extremely important. Now, Bill begins here to do one of his favorite things. He's going to talk to us about something we already know about, he assumes. And then he uses that to teach us something new. All great writers do that. And he's already said we're people who normally would not mix, but there exists among us a fellowship, a friendliness, and an understanding which is indescribably wonderful. We are like the passengers of a great liner. The moment after rescue from shipwreck, when camaraderie, joyousness, and democracy pervade the vessel from steerage to captain's table. Now remember, this was written in 1937, 38, and 39. And back in those days, nearly all the travel from one continent to another was done on the great ocean liners. And on the great ocean liners, you had a distinct class system. The immigrants, the poor people coming from Europe to the United States... They normally rode in what they call the steerage section, way down in the bowels of the ship, very little fresh air, dormitory-style living, and I call it the cheese sandwich section. (laughs) The food wasn't too good. Now, if you had a little more money, though, and you wanted better accommodations, you could buy a third-class ticket, and you could come up a deck or two. And the accommodations were better, the food was better, and you got a little fresh air once in a while. If you wanted something better yet, you could buy a second-class ticket. You come up another deck or two, and now you're beginning to get into some small staterooms, a little better food, and more fresh air. 
If you wanted the best accommodations, you bought a first-class ticket way up in the top of the ship, nice staterooms, nice food, nice dining rooms, nice everything. But still, that wasn't the best place to be on the ship. If you had the right kind of money. Old, old money. Old money. No new money. If you had the right religion. If you had the right ethnic background. If you had the right everything that was required, you might be asked to dine at the captain's table. Now, the captain's table was the finest place on the ship. The best waiters, the best food, the best everything. Only the more elite members of society got to dine at the captain's table. Normally, the person from the steerage section would never meet the person who dines at the captain's table. In fact, they even had separate stairwells, so they could not run into each other accidentally. Now, in 1937, 38, and 39, the Titanic is still fresh on everybody's mind. And the night that the Titanic hit the iceberg and the ship began to sink, somehow, someway, the guy from the steerage section made his way up to the upper decks and he's standing there at the rail. Next to him is a guy that has just come from the captain's table. Now, the man from the steerage section has got on his old work overalls his old work shirt, and his old brogan shoes. Standing next to him now is the guy from the captain's table. And he's got on his tuxedo. He's got on his little tie that goes with it. He's got on his jewelry and everything. And these guys had nothing in common with each other, period. Standing there next to the ship rail. And they had nothing in common until... They both jumped overboard. And when their butts hit that cold water, they had something in common. How do we save ourselves? And they grabbed on to whatever they could grab on to. A lifeboat, a piece of planking, or whatever they could grab on to. And when they were both rescued, and they got back on another ship or back on land... There was a feeling amongst those two people which was indescribably wonderful. One of the greatest feelings a human being can experience is being together with a group of people who have escaped from the common peril. And that's one of the things that bind you and I together is this great feeling that we have for each other having escaped from the common peril. Bill used the sinking of the Titanic is that illustration. We are like the passions of a great liner the moment after rescue from shipwreck, when camaraderie, joyousness, and democracy pervade the vessel from steerage to captain's table. And God, you hear it in AA meetings everywhere you go. I've been listening to it here all weekend when we have the, the camaraderie and the joyousness and the democracy pervading us one from one to the other period. But now he warns us. Unlike the feeling of the ship's passengers, however, our joy in escape from disaster does not subside as we go our individual ways. 
when they got back on land, and they probably looked at each other and they said, well, you know, we really don't belong together. And the guy from the steerage section, he went his way. And the guy from the captain's table went his way. And that great feeling they had for each other was lost, never to see each other again. But our escape from disaster does not subside because alcohol is right outside the door waiting on us all the time. And this feeling we have for each other is the same, believe me, the same anywhere in the world. You know, we've been fortunate enough to go to many, many meetings in many, many different countries, and we get the same feelings there that we have here this weekend. So our escape from disaster does not subside as we go our individual ways because we can pick it up again at any time going to another AA meeting. An AA meeting. But listen to him. The feeling of having shared in a common peril is one element in the powerful cement which binds us. But that in itself would never have held us together as we are now joined. The tremendous fact for every one of us is that we have discovered a common solution. We have a way out on which we can absolutely agree and upon which we can join in brotherly and harmonious action. This is the great news this book carries to those who suffer from alcoholism. Not the news of the fellowship, but the news of the common solution. And later on, we're going to see where the common solution is the vital spiritual experience, which comes about through the working and living of the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I think one of the greatest tragedies I see in the world today and God knows we got lots of tragedies going on all over the world. But I think one of the greatest tragedies that I can see today is that we people who are members of the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous, we are spending literally hundreds and thousands of dollars. We are spending hundreds and thousands of men and women work hours trying to attract other alcoholics to the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous when we've got thousands and thousands and thousands of alcoholics who are NAA that are in the fellowship only and they're doing nothing about the common solution. And they're sitting around with untreated alcoholism and they usually go back to drinking and end up dying from alcoholism. You know, I think one of the things it's our responsibility as older members to do is to say to the newcomer, you bet you there's a lot of power in the fellowship of alcohol.